this morning I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, now, it's a true story and it's a story from the scriptures and it's the story of Esther. Um, Esther is a, a true story. It's history. It was written so that we would never forget how God is sovereign over all things. He is in control. And uh, to this day, the Jewish people celebrate this as the Feast of Purim. And they are celebrating how God delivered them from near annihilation. It all happened about 2,500 years ago, after the reign of King David, when he has his son Solomon, and they build the temple, and, and everything is splendid and wonderful. And then the people uh, fall into sin, they fall away from God's ways, and they um, are deported and um, it's before the time of Nehemiah. So by the time you get to Nehemiah, even though the books in the Bible are in the wrong way round, uh, Nehemiah is desperately sad when he hears of the destruction of the temple and, uh, and how bad a state Jerusalem is in and how they need to go and sort that out. So between David and Nehemiah is Esther, two and a half thousand years ago, a time when the Persians dominated the entire Middle East from Egypt to India. And one man ruled, and his name was Xerxes. Now, you'll see a, a cartoon kind of impression of him from the film 300, an imaginary impression. And then we have um, a stone carving because he ruled as a dictator. He was a man of immense power. So this is a, a stone carving of him. And then you'll see the ruins of Persepolis, which is in modern-day Iran. And then also an imaginary reconstruction of the view from the palace. So this is... Um, this is real. The Jews at that time had been deported, as I said, from their promised homeland. But they were clinging to their national identity whilst also trying to adapt to life in a foreign land. A little bit like some of you here, you may uh, identify with the way that they felt. You may have family ties to other nationalities and ethnicities, and you know the importance of uh, remembering your heritage and remembering the customs and the values of your nationality. And in another sense, every one of us here, if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we can also relate because we are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We are God's children. And so we live in this world. We live in this culture. We want to fit in. We want to be relevant. But we also have to hold on to our real identity as children of God, to our real purpose in this world. And we are holding on to the truth of the scriptures and the, the customs of the scriptures. Now, in this setting, Esther is a young girl. She's a Jew. And she has been orphaned. And so this little orphan girl has been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Now, the story opens with a feast. King Xerxes has laid on an incredible banquet. This man of awesome power and wealth throws a party that lasts 180 days. That's six months of partying. Six months. Princes, nobles, dignitaries, military leaders, basically all the hobnobs came from great distances for this lavish feasting. And it tells us in the first chapter of Esther. I'm just going to read to you from verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. 
in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one unique, different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. So it was extraordinarily lavish and decadent. The wine flowed, it was unlimited. The tables were continually restocked and heavily laden with incredible exotic food. It was pure indulgence and gorging. The entertainment would have been lavish and incredibly dazzling, spectacular and no doubt debaucherous in every way. In fact, we know the event became so debauched and lecherous that any dignified woman with her wits about her would stay away, which is exactly what Queen Vashti, Xerxes' wife, did. And she invited the other dignitary wives to come and join her in her own banquet in her own estate. However, during this event, King Xerxes decides to call for Queen Vashti. He wants to tantalize his drunken, lecherous guests with her beauty. It would be like Prince William calling for Kate to parade down a catwalk half naked and then do a pole dance in front of his friends. Terrible, undignified. And Vashti is demeaned by this request, and so she refuses. Well, refuses the king? The king is so angry. He is fuming with anger. It's humiliating, it's insubordinate, and it cannot go unpunished. No one ever refuses the king. And one of his drunken dignitaries perks up and says, it's not only you, she's insulted all men. Now all wives will think that they can snub their husbands and it's all going to get terribly out of control. So Vashti is banished from the king's court and her estate is to be given to a new replacement. So a new queen must be found. So this is what we find in chapter 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Of course it did. <laughs> anyway, so basically they're proposing a beauty contest. Now, in those days, women were property. They were useful for childbearing, for child-rearing, and caring for the household. And in the palace, it was even worse, because there was nothing for them to do. So they were just objects of beauty and adornment. Now, in many countries to this day, women are grossly undervalued. But even in our present day, even in our culture, women still have huge hang-ups about the way they look. And I read somewhere not long ago, men look at women, women watch themselves being looked at. Well, women from every province were called to go through the selection process. It was like the X factor before the judges. 
the most beautiful women would be taken into the winter palace under the care of Haggai, the chief eunuch. Now, these eunuchs are men who've been castrated, but they were often high officials. It was believed that with low testosterone, they would be a, there would be a lower chance of their attempting to violate the king's wives and concubines. But it would also lower their threat to harm the king. So they were often the most revered around the king, highly intelligent political leaders and academics, sometimes his very trusted close advisors. So Haggai the eunuch takes personal care of the king's royal harem. While many of these top beauties in the land are under his care, they're going to be receiving the most indulgent therapy. Facials, massages, they will be waxed, stripped, exfoliated, rubbed, scrubbed, wrapped, steamed, pedicured, manicured, polished, permed, and pumiced. You can see, I love all this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> they will be given personal eating plans, health checks, dental care, fitness plans, aromatherapy. And if that's not enough, I'm sure colonic irrigations too. <laughs> but they will also have to learn to dance. They'll have elocution lessons but also lessons in sexual technique, they will have to learn to seduce the king. Because during this time, they will have to spend nights with the king. All of them owned, all his property, all groomed to please one man, King Xerxes. And after 12 months of enduring all this and more, the king will choose one of them as queen, and the others will be his wives and concubines. And so we see in this most extraordinary time, we see God's sovereignty at work, despite power, corruption, women being violated and abused, God is going to work through these situations. Esther is an orphan Jew, and yet she is chosen for her beauty. The Bible tells us she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Esther is placed in the winter palace under Haggai, the eunuch's care. And it tells us that the girl pleased him and won favor with him. So she win Haggai's heart and his respect. You know, while other women are calling for his attention left, right, and center, this is their opportunity to be queen. And um, they want every treatment and they want to kind of suck up to him. Something about Esther wins his favor. And so he starts to give Esther special attention. He personally prepares her for the king. And then she's presented to the king. And after some time, the king chooses his queen and he chooses Esther. Both her beauty and her character have gained her a place of great influence and power. But she will need to handle herself very, very carefully. Now, Esther is queen, but she's still under the instruction of her cousin Mordecai. And he has instructed her to hide her nationality. So no one knows that Esther is a Jew. And here she is, the most powerful woman in Xerxes' empire. And the king is delighted with her. Now, early in Esther's reign, Mordecai, her cousin, while working at the city gate, which is like the chamber of commerce, he overhears a plot um, to murder the king. And so he tells Esther, who is able to warn the king, and Mordecai is recorded in the government archives as a national hero. It's a very important piece of information that you need to remember. Now, the story really gets um, exciting when Haman, the villain, enters the scene. Haman is an insidious, evil-to-the-core character. 
He was second in command with a salacious appetite for power. He was so full of himself. If he had an Instagram account, every picture would be of himself. Even more, uh, since the king had ordered that everybody bow before Haman. So Haman goes around the palace loving the fact that people are bowing before him all over the place. But there is one man who infuriates him, Mordecai, Esther's cousin. He won't bow before Haman. He won't bow because as a Jew, he will put no man before God. And bowing is a sign of honor to God. So Haman is livid, livid when he discovers that it's because Mordecai has religious convictions, because Mordecai is a Jew. You see, Haman was descended from the Amalekites, and there had been feuding and wars between the Amalekites for centuries. And so he decides to revenge not only Mordecai, but all Jews. And he goes to the king, and very manipulatively, he suggests that there is a certain group of immigrants in this vast empire who are living by different standards than the rest of the king's subjects. These dissenters are a threat that undermine the empire. They should be hunted down and exterminated. In fact, he says, I will personally put 375 tons of silver as payment for the men who accomplish this. 375 tons of silver. But it's not going to be his own money, because what he'll do is he'll take the plunder from the Jewish people that they destroy and use that to pay the men for what they're about to do. Well, the king naively is impressed by Haman's concern and loyalty. And so he agrees with Haman's plan and just really puts Haman in charge of the whole project. Neither the king nor Haman have any idea that Esther is a Jew. The queen, who so delights the king, is one of this group's uh, this group of immigrants supposedly undermining the empire. So the decree is sent out. On a certain day, Persians will be encouraged to rise up against all Jews and kill them. No man, woman or child should be spared. So God's chosen people are about to be annihilated. And it's going to be a bloody massacre. Well, on hearing this, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is devastated. It's because of him. He is responsible. He rushes desperately to send a message and a copy of the decree to Esther. And he urges her to plead for mercy for her people to the king. But Esther has a problem. Because no one, least of all a woman, can just go to the king. They have to wait to be summonsed. There's a waiting list. There's an appointment system. And even she has to wait her turn. And the fact is, the king hasn't asked for Esther in over 30 days. So for all she knows, he's bored of her. And also, anybody who presumes to enter the presence of the king without an official invitation risks death. If you were to enter his presence without an invitation, you would have to wait for the king to extend his golden scepter. If he does, great. But if he doesn't, you are whisked away Either your head chopped off or you're hung. So Esther sends a message back to Mordecai. I can't do what you're asking of me. But Mordecai responds. And in chapter 4, it says this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sends back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
and who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. So basically, he's saying, Esther, you cannot think of yourself at this time. Sooner or later, they're going to discover that you're a Jew and you too will be killed. So you have a choice. You either keep silent and God chooses someone else to deliver his people. And in the meantime, you will have dishonored your family and both you and your father's household will die. Or who knows, maybe you were chosen to be queen for such a time as this. Wow. Massive identity check. Esther has to think to herself, am I a a Persian queen or am I God's child? Am I one of God's chosen people? And you know, sooner or later, it's a question for all of us who've surrendered our lives to Jesus. Who am I? Why am I here? Am I here for my own purposes? Am I here to fulfill my own ambitions and my own dreams? Or am I here to fulfill God's purposes in this time? Well, Esther gets it. And so she asks through Mordecai for all the Jews to join her in a three-day fast. She asks them to not drink and not eat for three days. Esther is afraid. She has no idea how this is going to work out. And by fasting, she's saying, God, I put all my hope and all my trust in you. After the fast, she will approach the king, even though it's forbidden. And basically, she says, if I die, I die. Three days later, knowing the risks, knowing what happened to Vashti, her predecessor, she prepares to go to the king. She dresses in her most stunning queenly robes and bravely she glides into the king's court. And there, sitting on the throne, is Xerxes' board. And there's a long wait. For a moment, he just stares and everybody is looking at the king. And then they're looking at Esther. And they look back to the king. And they look back to Esther. And the tension is horrendous. And just as the soldiers and the courtiers are about to move towards Esther to take her away, the king picks up his golden scepter and he points it to Esther. What a relief. Far from being irritated, he is delighted. He's mesmerized by her presence. And in a euphoric moment, he promises her anything up to half of his kingdom. Wow, what a temptation. Maybe she could back down. Maybe she could take this incredible reward and just walk out of there. How would you and I fare? Does she raise the difficult subject or does she take the pay rise and just walk out? But Esther has discovered her calling. She's realized this isn't about her. This is about God's people and God's will for them. And so all she does is invite the king and Haman, the villain, to a banquet at her palace. And the king accepts. And that evening, the king and Haman, full of himself, arrive. The king is so impressed by Esther's hospitality and totally besotted with her. And again, he says to Esther, what would you like? You can have anything up to half of my kingdom. And all Esther does is ask that the king and Haman once again attend her banquet the next evening. Tomorrow, she says, I'll answer your request. And the king again accepts. Did she know what she was going to ask? Does she have a plan or was she just stalling for time, waiting for God to show her what to do? 
Haman, on the other hand, he leaves the palace skipping on air. He is so happy. He's so full of pride. He's so favored. Wow, there he is strutting through the royal chambers and everybody's bowing before him. But there, in the distance, he can see Mordecai standing up, refusing to bow. And Haman sees with anger. And he goes home and he tells his wife, firstly, how favored he is, what an amazing evening he's had at Esther's palace, and how amazing he is, and how, uh, you know, the king just loves to be in his presence, and Esther loves to be in his presence. But then he also says how angered he is, how annoyed, how bitter he is that Mordecai is not bowing and how he can't wait for Mordecai to die. Well, his wife suggests, she has this idea that he build a 75 foot high gallows. Why don't you ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai? After all, he's a Jew and he's going to die anyway. So excited about this, Haman orders a gallows be built right there and then that night. In the morning, First thing, he'll go to the king and he'll ask that Mordecai be hung on the gallows. Well, that night, the king can't sleep. Maybe it's the banging noise of the gallows being built. Or maybe it's passion for Esther keeping him awake. But what he does is he calls for the royal record of achievements to be brought to him. Maybe reading this will send him to sleep. But there, as it's being read to him, he hears of the time when Mordecai prevented the king from being murdered. What has been done for this hero? Nothing. Nothing's been recorded. Well, the king gets thinking. First thing in the morning, he gets up and there he finds Haman waiting outside his bedroom, waiting for permission to hang Mordecai. And the king comes out and he says, Ah, Haman, what should be done for the man the king desires to honor? Well, Haman assumes it's him. It's for him, of course. Dress him in your finest royal robes. Sit him on one of your thoroughbred horses. Parade him around Susa and have a royal official act as herald announcing, This is the man the king delights to honor. Marvelous, says the king. The man I want to honor is Mordecai. <laughs> and I would like you, Haman, to be the one to herald this great announcement. Imagine poor Haman, his face. Oh my goodness, worst day of his life. He has to walk around parading Mordecai, shouting out, this is the man the king desires to honor. Well, thankfully, after this most terrible day, he has the banquet at Esther's. So there he is again with the king in Esther's palace. There they are reclining with the guests at her table on couches of gold. And the king again asks, what is it you would like from me, Esther? All I want, she finally tells him, is that I be allowed to live. Maybe you don't know, but all my people have been sold, not into slavery. We could do that again. We've done it before. No, this time it's to be slaughtered like animals. What? Who has done this terrible thing? The king exclaims. Esther turns and points to Haman. There he is. Haman, ashen with fear. 
His look gives it all away, and the king gets up furiously, storms out into the palace gardens, there to catch his breath, to calm down, trying to understand what is it that Haman has done. Well, if the king is upset, what about Haman? He had no idea the queen was a Jew, and desperately he rushes towards her, and as he walks towards her for mercy, he trips over her garment, lands on top of Esther on the couch, and at that moment, the king comes back in. What? Now you're molesting the queen? Right here in my presence? Guards, take him out and hang him on those gallows I see in the distance. (laughs) So Haman is hanged on the same gallows intended for Mordecai. Mordecai, on the other hand, is raised to take Haman's place as chief commander. God's providence is incredible. Now, although the king cannot revoke his own edict against the Jews, what he does is he resources them to raise an army of their own. And the story ends with the enemies of the Jews being defeated and many non-Jews becoming Jews. So what do we take from this amazing true story? Well, first of all, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over every situation. God is at work in our lives, in your life, in my life, in these times, in every situation that you face. He is sovereign. You can trust him with his goodness. God will use ordinary people. He took an orphan girl, a people that were, was not, they were, they were foreigners in that country, and he raised her up for an extraordinary deliverance for God's people. He uses people like you and me. Everyone gets to play. We say that in the vineyard. Everybody gets to participate. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then you're saying to Jesus, use me for your purposes. And God will use you. You may think that you are a nobody. You may have a very low self-esteem. You may feel like you're the less less intelligent person in the whole country. You know, you may think that you can amount to nothing. You may be the poorest You may be right now in the midst of a a, a terrible grief or a difficult situation, but God can use you because he takes ordinary people. And God can use you, thirdly, in any situation. He can use you in the midst of your disability, in the midst of poverty. He can use you in the midst of a family breakup. Yes, even in your pain, you can show people what Jesus is like. You may be in the most, most difficult work situation, And yet that could be exactly where God wants you. I was talking to someone this week who their work situation, people are leaving their jobs. They're, you know, they're, they're phoning in sick because they find the workplace so stressful and so difficult and so dark. And I said to this person, how is it that you're still there? How is it that you cope? And she said, because I carry joy. And the truth is when we have Jesus in our hearts, we carry the fruits of the Spirit. You know, we have love and we have joy and we have peace and kindness and all the others. And so we can display these things in the most terrible situations. God may want to use you for such a time as this. Folks, we live in a time in our culture in Europe where people are far from God. Our culture no longer reveres God. These are very unique times. There may be times that we will enter in years to come not long away when we may be persecuted as Christians. And yet God may want to use us for such a time as this. Are you ready? Are you ready for God to use you? Why don't we stand?